Welcome to The Backstory with Dr. Ricky Singh. This podcast is focused on bringing you the latest research-based information about dramatically improving health, well-being, and quality of life. And here's your host, Dr. Ricky Singh. Spinal cord stimulation has been in clinical practice for more than three decades. And while the primary use of this therapy has been in the spine, in recent years, the therapy has been used more extensively in other areas, such as the GI system, the cardiovascular system, and other parts of the body. My guest today is an associate professor of anesthesiology and the director of pain management at Wall Cornell Medicine. He also co-directs the Wall Cornell Center for Comprehensive Spine Care. He specializes in interventional pain management with a particular focus on minimally invasive therapies such as neuromodulation and spinal cord stimulation. So please welcome my good friend, Dr. Neil Matha. Neil, welcome to The Backstory. Ricky, thank you for having me. Wonderful to, to be on your podcast. So, you know, many of our listeners aren't really familiar with neuromodulation or spinal cord stimulation as a therapy for treating pain. So can you give us a little background on what does neuromodulation even mean? Well, neuromodulation is basically modifying the nerve. You can do that in several different ways. You can use things like medications. People are familiar with gabapentin and Lyrica out there if they've been suffering from pain. But also there are other types of devices that get involved in this space. TENS units are out there in physical therapies offices and now at home. There are pumps that can deliver medication directly to the spinal fluid to try to modify how our nerves feel pain. And what we're focused on today is neuromodulation using spinal cord stimulation. And the way I explain it is that it's like a pacemaker, but only for the spine rather than the heart. So you, you mentioned TENS units. So I know a lot of our patients go to physical therapy and the therapist may put these electrical pads on their back or leg or neck where they have pain. So that's also considered neuromodulation? It's in the broad category, yes. Now, those devices can be as cheap as 20 bucks for a, a home use kit. And over time, these things have become over-the-counter. So the technology has stayed kind of stable, but the prices have come way down. What you and I are talking about today are the implanted versions or, or sort of sophisticated spinal and peripheral nerve stimulator devices. And these are quite, quite expensive, but really have a lot of research and, and innovation in this space. And as a result, we're seeing better outcomes, but also expanded use to other diseases that we never thought about years ago. So tell me a little bit about how do spinal cord stimulators even work and how do you determine if a patient might be a good candidate for this therapy? Well, I think most importantly is that we have a clear sort of understanding of what the condition is. For many patients, that can be challenging because they've had years of pain. They've had a number of interventions and workup uh, done for them, lots of imaging and so forth, and they continue to suffer. So really, this therapy is a therapy for people who kind of exhausted the more conservative things, things like you and I do every day, like epidural steroid injections or nerve blocks, use of various types of medication. So we're really looking for those that need something more than just the basic treatment. But that said, it should not be thought of as a condition or, or treatment of last resort. I mean, it, it certainly should be looked at for patients that are suffering, 
and not wait years and years for trying to treat them. The right type of patient is somebody that has a focal area of pain, an area that we can map out, say, one leg or both legs or an arm or whatever region of the body that we're focused on. But those that may have full body pain or areas that like multiple joints and so forth, it may be a little more challenging because these are working on specific nerves and therefore you need a target to go after. Also, it should be somebody that has the ability to have an implanted device in. So they are accepting of that. They don't have any medical reasons such as history of strong uh, or related infections or blood thinners that may make it more challenging. Those are the types of conditions that we look at first. So Neil, let's say you're a patient that has seen one of us in the spine center and has undergone epidural injections, some medications, physical therapy, and maybe even undergone some type of spine surgery, and yet you still suffer from chronic pain. What's the process of when they come see you for a consultation and you discuss spinal cord stimulation therapy as an option for them? It's a great question, Ricky. And once we've sort of gone through the clearance process with both checking in with your doctors and making sure you're medically appropriate, getting insurance approval, we essentially schedule you for a trial of spinal cord stimulation. and that's really unique in this type of medicine. Uh, imagine the opportunity to try out a treatment w- with a very minimally invasive procedure without undergoing full surgery. So we talked about that this device is a implanted therapy, but we can temporarily place it through the use of a needle without making any incisions and allow you to go home and try it out, pushing yourself over that course of a week or so to see if it's for you. So the doctor doesn't have to make the determination on whether it's the right therapy. Essentially, the patient does. We place the wire, secure it with some bandaging. They go home, and we talk every day during the week. And at the end of the week, we together make a decision on how the therapy is going. It's amazing how, unlike other treatments, like epidurals and even spine surgery, there's really no trial phase. So with with spinal cord stimulation, it sounds like patients can really take this for a test drive for whatever, five to seven days and see if it works. And once they do come back to the office, what's that process? How do you take those leads out? And then what's the next step? So it's very simple. They come back to the office. We essentially pull the bandage off and pull the wires really no different than pulling an intravenous out if you've ever had surgery. Together, we make a decision on whether to go forward with the implant. If for some reason it was disappointing and didn't provide the relief, you have a Band-Aid placed, then there's no permanent consequence. You're ready to go on to the next treatment. But if you do decide that this was the right thing for you, and and I'll say that probably 80 to 90% of patients do believe that, we schedule a separate date for a implant surgery. And this is a outpatient surgery where a small incision is made to secure the wires under the skin and a small incision for the battery to be placed so that the whole system is under your skin and you can go about swimming and showering and doing all the things that you used to do without any sort of worry. And these systems last anywhere from five to 10 years. You don't really need repeat surgery 
to revise the system unless something were to change, like the wires moved or battery needed replacement. So it's pretty long lasting for patients. You know, it sounds like one of the early indications for spinal cord stimulation was something we used to call failed back surgery syndrome or post-laminectomy syndrome. Do you have to have, quote, failed a spine surgery in order to be a candidate for spinal cord stimulation? The answer is no. While the majority of cases are patients that unfortunately had spine surgery that continue to suffer from pain, whether it's something happened during surgery or something that just didn't get better, we're seeing expanded usage into people who didn't have spine surgery, those that may have severe conditions that surgery may no longer be a good option, or that the ability to get through surgery would be very challenging. I've done spinal cord stimulators in those with severe scoliosis where the surgery would be quite challenging to do, and they've been able to live their life with a minimally invasive procedure and and really get the outcome that they want. How long have spinal cord stimulators been around and how have things changed in the development of research and the different waveforms that we can use for this therapy? Well, I guess you could say that stimulation has been around back to the days of torpedo fish in the, in the Roman and the Greeks time period, but really was invented in the 1960s where a electrode was placed in the, in the spinal cord itself for a patient severely suffering from cancer pain. The therapy itself that we see today came about about 20 years ago and has had rapid, rapid innovation and improvement over time. And in the past sort of five to seven years, we've really seen an expansion both in the ability to use it in better outcomes, better research, and a broader application to different conditions. So it's a pretty exciting time to be part of this because every year we see better opportunity to help patients. You know, most of the research out there on spinal cord stimulation is on patients who have back pain, neck pain, arm and leg pain. So mostly pain originating from the spine in some sense. But one of the newer indications and novel approaches for spinal cord stimulation is around the mechanisms of gastrointestinal motility, GI motility. Can you speak to us a little bit about what the research is showing on spinal cord stimulation for something called gastroparesis? Sure. Gastroparesis is essentially the the slowing down of the GI tract so that patients often feel like the food is stuck in there, especially in their esophagus area. And it may be a nerve condition. We often see this in diabetes patients where they're experiencing pain from neuropathy. And we use a system in some early research that was done to help their neuropathy pain, but they also started to experience better swallowing ability and better passage of food. So again, we're, we're seeing real opportunity to treat patients beyond just spinal conditions. In those patients with some type of swallowing dysfunction or their guts moving a little slow, is the trial process the same? Would you trial someone with the spinal cord stimulator for a week and assess whether their motility has improved? Essentially, the answer is yes. But one of the limitations is that this is still in a off-label usage, meaning the FDA hasn't completely approved this process yet. And so we're seeing this more research phase. 
as we build the body of evidence and go to the FDA for approval and then seek out insurance reimbursement for these type of cases, we hope that the process will be very similar as to what it is for spinal conditions. One of the things you mentioned earlier was peripheral neuropathy in patients who have diabetes, so something called diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And, you know, this is a very challenging condition to treat. We, we trial different medications, like you mentioned, gabapentin and Lyrica. Yet spinal cord stimulation is showing some novel uses in this patient population. I know you're very invested in, in researching this. So tell us a little bit about diabetic neuropathy and what your research has shown using spinal cord stimulation. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So we've seen patients that suffer from diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, suffer also painful diabetic neuropathy. One of the challenges here is that there really isn't great treatment. Many patients have tried drugs that they may have heard about, gabapentin and Lyrica, for years with sort of minimal to mediocre improvement. And a lot of side effects in terms of feeling drowsy or gaining weight. And so this this area really needed some help. And we worked with spinal cord stimulation to use high-frequency stimulation to treat this particular condition. We just wrapped up a study where patients that had been on gabapentin or Lyrica for a long period of time and still continued to suffer from pain, so really some of the most challenging cases, we put in stimulator trials uh, for them, and if they had a successful trial, we went on to implant them. And while the the research is still being analyzed, I can say that we had a really remarkable benefit seen in those that were able to undergo stimulation. And what kinds of things did they see? Well, they they saw pain relief for sure, and really game-changing pain relief. Some patients were quite impressed with what they saw and were really excited to tell about their experiences to other people. But also some reversal of some of the nerve damage that you see with PDN or painful diabetic neuropathy. So sometimes they saw improvement in numbness, ability to walk better, gain some exercise ability back, and then start to lose weight. So really all these sort of downstream effects that we were able to see just because we were able to control their pain better. What's nice to hear is, you know, spinal cord stimulation in this patient population, those suffering from diabetes, it's not the end solution. You know, that spinal cord stimulation might add quality to a patient's life just by allowing them to function better and exercise and walk more. Were there any functional outcomes that you looked at after implanting these devices for these patients? Absolutely. So walking abilities improved, their ability to exercise, even just sensing things. They remember a lot of these neuropathy patients lose the ability to feel in their feet and toes. So the chance of infections and so forth was also impacted in a, in a positive way. So a lot of functional improvements beyond just subjective pain relief. So once you have an implant, whether it's for a spine-related condition or painful diabetic neuropathy, once the actual implant has been placed, how do those patients function? Can they do whatever they want to do? Are there certain limitations that you tell patients prior to the surgery? Well, they certainly can increase their ability to do physical activity. Now, there's always going to be limitations. We have patients that 
are so excited about their ability to get their lives back that they go on to do some really remarkable things. And some of those things, like playing golf or jumping out of airplanes that some of my patients have done, have caused a pressure or or sort of torquing of their upper body such that the wires move out of their sweet spot that we mapped to their spine. And while it's not dangerous per se, it certainly changed the amount of pain relief they got. And we had to go back in surgically to revise the placement of those wires. The second limitation is that some devices limit the ability to have MRIs or the type of MRIs that you can have. And so that's something important to talk to your doctor about to know that if you do need future MRIs, which systems to consider and what limitations you may have. You you mentioned earlier that these devices last five to 10 years. So what happens at that point? Do you have to have the patient undergo a full new surgery or is there some tweak to the existing system? Essentially, as long as the wires are, are functioning or in, and they're in the right place, which we can confirm by x-ray and, and how the patient's recording their pain relief, it usually just means to swap out a battery. So just like any other car battery or home use, these batteries do have a lifespan. Many of them are rechargeable, so it means that they last much longer than the old days when they were conventional batteries. So typically, five to 10 years is the average amount of time that someone is able to utilize a battery and then just undergoes a half-hour battery swap under sedation anesthesia, and it's certainly able to go home the same day. Certainly one of the byproducts of these implantable devices presumably is a reduction in a patient's use of opioids and obviously and during this time controlling how much opioids patients takes is very important to us at the spine center have you seen that in your practice that patients are using less medications after undergoing a spinal cord stimulation for sure uh, we know that the potential harm that can come from long-term opioid usage So it is something of great importance for us when we consider these therapies. And while not all patients have been able to significantly reduce opioids, we believe that we've actually made an impact in preventing higher or more usage of opioid as well in those that weren't able to cut back. So it does make a difference. And when used in the right cases, it really is game-changing for patients. You know, improving a patient's quality of life, allowing them to function more and even sleep better are, are all things that we strive for when treating chronic pain. You know, you're, you're very involved in the clinical aspect of spinal cord stimulation, certainly on the research side. What are you most excited about? You said the technology has increased tremendously in the last five to 10 years. Where do you see the field going in the next five to 10 years? Well, I, I think there's a number of things that are coming up which are really exciting. So number one, continuing to expand the types of conditions that we treat. Can we make an impact in those that suffer from chest pain, from non-heart-related issues? Can we make an impact in those that suffer from pain in their face, from trigeminal neuralgia or headaches? Can we, even we saw some early research on improving quality of life in those that suffer from Parkinson's syndrome and, and impacting their ability to walk and so forth. 
But not only is it just the conditions that are improving, but can we push the needle even further, no pun intended, on getting better outcomes in the conditions that we already treat? So many of these therapies are sort of fixed in the sense that they use certain frequencies or certain algorithms. And you may be able to tweak them a little bit, but they're very manual in process. Imagine artificial intelligence coming in to be able to adapt and predict and even suggest certain types of programming depending on what you're doing or experiencing at that time. So the technology is moving from what we saw just 10 years ago to light years ahead in the next few years. That's all sounds fascinating. I'm glad that we have you as part of our team at the Wall Cornell Center for Comprehensive Spine Care, kind of staying on the forefront of neuromodulation technologies. To our listeners out there, if they're suffering from chronic pain and they've had surgeries and epidurals, yet they have some reservations about undergoing yet another surgery to have this implanted device, what do you tell those patients and allay some of their anxieties surrounding this therapy? Well, I think the two biggest fears that patients may experience when discussing this is, number one, a, another surgery, but these surgeries are far less than what they've already gone through, and certainly those that have gone through fusion surgeries. So uh, m- the majority of these cases are done under sedation anesthesia and are able to go home the same day. And don't forget, we talked about the opportunity to trial it. So, you know, part of the anxiety is not knowing what to expect and signing up for something that could be make, make their issues worse. With a trial, we alleviate a lot of those concerns. And then the second thing is the concern of having an implant or some sort of device inside them. What patients have shared with me that they really don't notice it. The, the wires certainly are deep inside that you don't, you don't ever see them. And a battery is so small And some of the new technologies even allow a battery on the outside, so you don't even have to implant those. So the sort of burden or or some of the concerns there in terms of having implants are being addressed with some of the newer technology. So patients, once they get the opportunity to see the pain relief, I think they're very pleased with with going ahead with the treatment. You know, you, you mentioned patients returning to an increased level of functionality. You know, I've sent your team patients who then go on to horseback ride and golf and ski. So certainly I can attest that this is a very, very durable therapy that greatly improves patients' function and quality of life. So Neil, you're certainly internationally recognized as an expert in neuromodulation and spinal cord stimulation. I love what you're doing in the space and staying up with technology. Thank you for spending time with us today on The Backstory, sharing your insights and expertise. We will certainly share your information with our listeners on how they can get in touch with you. Uh, But thank you again for spending time with us here. Thank you for having me. And to all the listeners, I wish you the best in health. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for listening to The Backstory. Please subscribe, rate the podcast, and review The Backstory on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. And feel free to share this podcast on social media or even your own website or blog. This podcast is for general information purposes only 
It does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. To learn more about Dr. Singh and his clinical research, please follow him on social media. You can also sign up for his newsletter by going to www.rickysinghmd.com. That's R-I-C-K-Y-S-I-N-G-H-M-D.com. 